0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 5, Episode 18. Last week, I covered Moses' siblings Aaron and Miriam, along with his wife Zipporah. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm continuing to cover the people found in the Book of Numbers. In this case, focusing on those inside of Judaism, beginning with Aaron's son, Eleazar then working through the rebellious trio, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And with that, let's get started. Eleazar was a priest in the Hebrew Bible, the second high priest, succeeding his father Aaron after his death. This would make Eleazar Moses's nephew. First, a note to avoid any potential confusion. This Eleazar isn't the only one found in the narrative. Exodus 18 names the son of Moses as Eleazar. Later, just as the tribes were uniting under Saul, there was Eleazar the son of Aminadab, who was entrusted as a keeper of the Ark of the Covenant, in his house, after the Ark was returned by the Philistines. I covered this in chapter 3, episodes 79 and 80. A little while later, there was Eleazar son of Dodo. He was one of King David's warriors. A while after that, there was Eleazar son of Pinhouse. He, along with several other men, were placed in charge of the sacred vessels brought back to Jerusalem following the Babylonian exile. In the Deuterocanonical book of 1 Maccabees, we can find Eleazar, sometimes called Avaran, who slays a battle elephant. In Second Maccabees, another Eleazar was a Hebrew scribe who was martyred under the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Fast forward to the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew, a final Eleazar, at least in the Bible. This one, the son of Eulid, is listed in the genealogy of Jesus as the great-grandfather of Joseph, husband of Mary. So, when you see the name, a certain amount of confusion is understandable. The one I'm focusing on today is the second high priest. Eliezer was prominent in the post-Exodus Israelite society. He wasn't likely the first choice to be the second high priest, as he had two older brothers. But those two, Nadab and Abihu, would suffer God's wrath, and the next thing you know, Eleazar was in the batter's box. At this time, he would be assisted by his younger brother, Ithamar. As a reminder, Nadab and Abihu were consumed by God's fire after they lit the fire of the censer with an outside source. As next in line, Eleazar would take on a number of different roles. He was in charge of the gold plating of the altar. He would also oversee the ceremony of the red heifer. He was also to maintain the sanctuary. He was married to the daughter of Ptahel, and his son was Phineas. This is the only mention of Ptahel in the Old Testament, so there's really nothing to add about him. Many years later, Phineas would become the third high priest. But Eleazar wasn't perfect. In Leviticus 10, Eleazar and his brother once angered Moses. How? They failed to eat a sin offering inside the tabernacle. According to earlier regulations in Leviticus, they were required to consume the portion of the offering allotted to them while still in the temple. When the people, as part of the wandering, moved from one location to the next, Eliezer was responsible for carrying the oil for the lampstand, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, and the anointing oil. He would also supervise the movement of the Ark of the Covenant, table for showbread, altar, along with the other tabernacle accoutrements. The actual transport was done by the Levitical Kohethites. In Numbers 16, a portion of the tribes rebelled against Moses' leadership and that only Levites were allowed to be priests. After their rebellion, the earth opened up and swallowed the house of Korah. More on this later in this episode. After the earth swallowed the rebels, Eleazar would take the rebels' bronze censers and hammer them into a covering for the altar. This was to serve as a reminder of the felled rebellion. Later, just before the death of the high priest, his father Aaron, while still on Mount Hor, he was fitted with the sacred priestly vestments. Moses took these from Aaron and put them upon Eleazar and with that, he became the new high priest. He would remain the high priest for over 20 years. During this time, he would aid Moses with the census and the distribution of territory to the various tribes. He would also oversee Joshua's installation as the new Israelite leader. When he died, he was buried at Jibbeah, on land allotted to his son Phinehas, that was in the hill country and land given to the tribe of Ephraim. This is thought to be located in the modern village of Arwata on the west bank of the Jordan. The high priesthood would remain in his family until the time of Eli, which was during the period of the judges, just before the uniting of the kingdom. This would be in the late 12th to early 11th centuries BC. Eli was a descendant of Eliezer's younger brother, Ithamar. But the priesthood would be restored to Eliezer's family when it passed back to Zadok, when Solomon was king of the united Israel. According to Samaritan sources, it remained in the family from that point until 1624 AD, with the death of the 112th high priest, Shaloma ben Penhouse, at that point, it transferred back to the line of Ithamar, at least according to the Samaritans. In fact, their current high priest, the 133rd high priest of the Samaritans, is Abed El Ben Asher Ben Masalike, having assumed the role in 2013. In their tradition, he's assumed to be a direct descendant of Aaron, though this claim is disputed by many outside their tradition. Of course, there are a number of other minor characters in the Book of Numbers, especially in the portions on the senses, but most are singular mentions. I'll pass on covering those, otherwise I'd be spending much more time in the book, along with continually repeating the phrase, nothing is really known about him. I'll instead focus on those that there is more to, or at least something interesting. Which gets me to an infamous trio, Number 16 records a revolt led by three named Israelites, along with another 250 unnamed, all upset with Moses. The first of these is Korah, the son of Izar. Don't confuse him with the other man by the same name, found a bit earlier in Genesis, and the son of Esau. This Korah was from the tribe of Levi and considered by some to be the first cousin of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But that isn't why he's remembered. Instead, in Numbers, he rebelled against Moses and Aaron and was punished by God, either by fire or by the ground opening up and sending him directly to Sheol. In some sources, it was both punishments. And it wasn't just the 250 that were met with such a drastic fate. Earth also consumed their families and anyone associated with them. After this, and for reasons I can't quite understand, many Israelites were upset with Moses about the fate of the recently departed, and they complained to him. They were truly a dense lot. They, of course, were punished, with nearly 15,000 coming down with a plague. Numbers 26, though, Notes that the children of Korah were spared his punishment. More on the significance of that in a bit. From the Old Testament, all that's really known about the affair is what's in Numbers 16. But rabbinic literature did offer a few more details. The name Korah, probably after the rebellion, came to be associated with the word bald. This is thought to have been due to his leaving a hole literally a blank space, in Israel after the rebellion when he, his co-conspirators, and some of his family disappeared. The later rabbis also considered him to be a man of great wealth, attributed to his discovery of one of the treasures his great-great-something uncle Joseph had hidden in Egypt. These rabbis claimed his wealth was so great it required 300 mules to transport. What isn't explained is how he either amassed or held on to his wealth while the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. He was considered one of the richest men in the world at the time. The rabbis did explain, though, that Korah's wealth was not given to him by God. He was, the present situation excluded, thought to have been a wise man and part of the Kohathite family of Levites and therefore part of the family charged with carrying the Ark of the Covenant when the Israelites were on the move. Rabbinic literature also explains the nature of the revolt that led to the hole in Israel. The root cause was said to have been the nomination of Elizaphan, a son of Uziel, to serve as a prince over the Kohathites. Korah is said to have argued against Elizaphan, stating that Kohath had four sons. The two sons of Amram, Kohath's eldest son, took for themselves the kingdom and the priesthood. Now, as I am the son of Kohath's second son, I should be made prince over the Kohathites. However, Moses gave that office to Elizaphan, the son of Kohath's youngest son. End quote. Essentially, he was upset that he had been skipped over, the next bit of dialogue contains several ritual Jewish elements. I'll save the short explanation of all of these for the end. Rabbinic literature continues with more detail. Korah asks Moses several questions. Does a taillet made entirely of tahalet need fringes? Moses answers yes, and Korah objected, saying, The blue color of the taillet does not make it ritually correct. Yet, according to your statement, four blue threads do so. Korah continues, Does a house filled with the books of the law need a muzara? Moses replied, yes. Korah retorted, The presence of the whole Torah, which contains 175 chapters, does not make a house fit for habitation. Yet, you say that one chapter of it does so. So far, Korah was being merely argumentative. Then he took it up a notch, claiming that Moses did not receive the commandments from God, but came up with them himself. This is when the background music took on an ominous tone. Korah then gathered 250 men, who were the leaders of the Sanhedrin, and, having clad them all in taillet of blue wool, but without fringes, prepared for them a banquet. At the banquet, Aaron's son showed up to take the priestly share, but Korah and the assembled group refused to give the prescribed portions to them, saying that it was not God but Moses who commanded those things. Aaron's sons returned to Moses and told him of all the group's actions. Moses then went to Korah's house to try to resolve the dispute. But, upon his arrival, the 250 rebels continued their rebellious ways, like rebels tend to do. Korah went to his wife for advice and she told him to continue with the revolt, saying, See what Moses has done? He has proclaimed himself king. He has made his brother high priest, and his brother's son's priest. Moreover, he has made you shave all your hair in order to disfigure you. Another source of the bald association with his name. Korah replied to her, But he has done the same to his own sons. His wife retorted, Moses hated you so much that he was ready to do evil to his own children, provided the same evil would overtake you. So much more detail. As for the new elements, a taillet is a fringed garment, traditionally worn as a prayer shawl by religious Jews. It has special knotted fringes, known as tzitzit attached to its four corners. Tahalet is a dye described as somewhere between blue, blue blue-violet, and turquoise. It was highly valued by ancient Mediterranean civilizations and is mentioned around 50 times in the Old Testament. This dye was used in the clothing of the high priest, the tapestries of the tabernacle, and the fringes of four-cornered garments, including the taillet. A mezuzah is a piece of parchment, or other writing surface like papyrus, contained in a decorative case and inscribed with specific Hebrew verses from the Torah. These verses consist of the Jewish prayer Shema Yisrael. In modern, mainstream rabbinic Judaism, a mezuzah is affixed to the doorpost of Jewish homes to fulfill the biblical commandment to write the words of God on the gates and doorposts of your house. Found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, some interpreters require a mezuzah in every doorway in the home, except rooms too small to be considered living spaces, like closets. Finally, the Sanhedrin were assemblies of either 23 or 71 elders, later known as rabbis, after the destruction of the second temple. They were appointed to sit as a tribunal in every city in the ancient land of Israel. This group is not mentioned by name in Numbers, nor anywhere in the Old Testament, but the precursors are established in the Pentateuch. I'll cover them in depth at some point in the future. The overriding theme was that Korah encouraged all the people to rebel against Moses, saying that Moses' laws were impossible to obey. He used a parable to argue his cause, telling the people, A widow, the mother of two young daughters, had a field. When she came to plow it, Moses told her not to plow it with an ox and an ass together. When she came to sow it, Moses told her not to sow it with mingled seeds. At the time of harvest, she had to leave unreaped the parts of the field prescribed by the law, while from the harvested grain she had to give the priest the share due to him. The woman sold the field, and with the proceeds bought two sheep but the firstborn of these she was obliged to give to Aaron the priest, and at the time of shearing he required the first of the fleece also. The widow said, I cannot bear this man's demands any longer. It will be better for me to slaughter the sheep and eat them. But Aaron came for the shoulder, the two cheeks, and the maw. The widow then vehemently cried out, If you persist in your demand, I declare them devoted to the Lord. Aaron replied, In that case, the whole belongs to me, whereupon he took away the meat, leaving the widow and her two daughters wholly unprovided for. And the story provides a bit more insight into what Moses was facing from his own people. Rabbinic literature provides more insight into Korah's state of mind, with an explanation of how it was possible for a supposed wise man like him to be so foolish as to rebel provided explanation is that he was deceived by his own assumed prophetic gifts. He had foreseen that the prophet Samuel would be his descendant, and therefore concluded that he himself would escape punishment. But he was mistaken, for while his sons escaped, he was consumed by God's wrath. Of course, this is supported by the later text in Numbers 26 that states that his sons lived. And, rabbinic literature provides more detail concerning his falling into the earth. The earth became like a funnel, and everything that belonged to him, even linen that was at the launderer, and needles that had been borrowed by persons living at a distance from Korah, rolled until they all fell into the chasm. Korah himself underwent the double punishment of being burned, then buried alive. He and his followers continued to sink, until Hannah prayed for them. According to the literature, it was due to her prayer that Korah ascended to paradise. Later, Rabbi Barhana, a Jewish Talmudist who lived in Babylonia, told that when he was traveling in the desert, an Arab showed him the place of Korah's engulfment. At that spot, there was a slit in the ground where he put some wool that had been soaked in water. The wool immediately dried. Then Hannah placed his ear to the slit, and heard voices cry, Moses and his Torah are true, and we are liars. Obviously, in this case, like many, rabbinic literature adds a great deal of explanation. I'll leave it to you, the judge, the veracity. Korah does merit mentions outside of the Old Testament. In the New Testament book of Jude, he's used in a metaphorical sense where it reads, Woe to them, for they go the way of Cain, and abandon themselves to Balaam's error for the sake of gain, and perish in Korah's rebellion. The Dead Sea Scrolls provide details about a Korah, but the context is unclear, so scholars are unsure which Korah they may reference. Also, the Ethiopian Orthodox Tahido's Church's Book of Second Mechayan mentions him. Finally, Korah is mentioned in the Islamic Quran, using the name Karun. The book describes him as being wealthy, which led to pride, arrogance, and ultimately, ignorance. Not very redeeming qualities. He would give credit for his wealth to his personal knowledge, not to God. The Quran also claims he used his wealth to tyrannize the Israelites. Similar to Numbers, the book said he, along with all of his wealth, was swallowed by the earth. The last bit on Korah is something way outside of Judaism, and maybe purely coincidental. In the Malay and Indonesian languages, so in extreme southeastern Asia, thousands of miles from the Sinai, the term for treasure is harta karun, literally translating to karun's treasure. And that's it for Korah, but there are two other specifically named instigators associated with the rebellion. These are the brotherly duo Dathan and Abiram. They were both members of the tribe of Reuben and were swallowed up by the earth, along with their households. The text of Numbers tells us very little, but similar to Korah, rabbinic literature adds a great deal of detail. The brothers were not only part of the rebellion, but had been persistent thorns in Moses' side, all the way back to Exodus 2, where they are said to have been the two fighting Hebrews who threatened to out Moses, an incident that was, at a minimum, part of his decision to flee to Midian. As a result of this, they are said to have become destitute and lower in social class, but they weren't done. After the Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to make bricks without straw, the brothers are thought to have been the supervisors who complained to Moses and Aaron. They're also suggested to have been the Israelites complaining immediately before the crossing of the Red Sea, in Exodus 14. This is consistent with what they are quoted in Numbers 16 as saying to Moses. Moses sent for Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, But they said, We will not come. Is it too little that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also lord it over us? It is clear you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come. Much of this rabbinic literature narrative was used to fill in the many plot gaps in the 1956 classic movie, The Ten Commandments. Overall, throughout Moses' life, these two were presented as his persistent antagonist. Despite this, Moses is said as always forgiving them and never casting the troublemakers out of the camp. Of course, we know how they met their end. Do note there is another, later Abiaram, who was the oldest son of Heel the Bethelite. Why someone later in the history would name their kid after this guy is beyond me, except for something I'll get to in a second. The later Abiaram would die an early, so untimely death, as his father was attempting to rebuild Jericho. This was during the reign of King Ahab, putting it in the 9th century B.C., and about the name, Abiram. Some scholars think it has the same etymological source as Abram, both going back to the same 24th century BC root. And that's why there are derivatives throughout the later Israelite culture and history. And that's it for these three rebels, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week, when I'll pick up with Caleb, one of the spies sent into Canaan. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase, Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.